Have you ever uh, been in a situation with just seems like the worst timing in the world? It's really, really bad timing. You know, I was thinking about that this week because uh, I was uh, going back in my mind to when Amy and I were uh, first married and we went to seminary. And uh, during that very, very first year, we decided to move 10 hours away. Didn't have any money. You know, we're going to just sort of make it up as we go, right? You know, and so we, we moved from uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area down to New Orleans, which isn't just 10 hours away. It's a different country, you know. If you've ever been to New Orleans, it's just different. And uh, so we moved there, and, uh, you know, and one of the things you got to do if you're a struggling seminary student and you don't have any money is go to financial aid. And so I quickly made my way over to financial aid, and, and there they told me, oh, we don't have any uh, scholarships for first-year seminary students. And it was that day that I learned the value of reading the small print of uh, contracts and other things, and, um, and so somehow we made it, you know. Uh, so I started seminary, uh, Amy got a job, I got a job, and we, we struggled through that very first uh, part of uh, the year and looked like we were doing okay. And then uh, Amy had a dentist appointment, and the dentist said, well, you, need, you really need to go see an oral surgeon uh, because there's something genetically going wrong with your, your teeth. Okay, so we go and see an oral surgeon and uh, the oral surgeon is very happy to see us. Uh, he said, oh yeah, I'll be glad to do the surgery that you need. It's going to cost $15,000. Now this is in 1992, and that year we made $14,000. And so this was going, going to be quite a challenge. On the way home from the oral surgeon's uh, office, uh, which was on the other side of town, the car began to break down. And uh, it was just one of those worst days in the world. They come along about once every 10 years, the worst day in the world, you know, will hit you about once every 10 years, and that was it uh, for us. So, you know, so you're frustrated, you're upset, you don't know what to do, you know, and, and, but you make it, and you're together, uh, you're young, you're too far away to really depend on mom and dad, and so uh, that, that's sort of a good thing sometimes when young people move away, and uh, they, they have a chance to be on their own, really on their own, and so... They, uh, all, of the, all of these circumstances really began to hit us, uh, but you persevere. And you make it through that year, and we made it through seminary, and I'm right there at the end of my uh, seminary uh, career. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to graduate from seminary. I'm going to get a job, a, a full-time job as a pastor, and the church is going to provide us something we haven't had since we've been married, health insurance. You know, and so when you're a poor, struggling uh, seminary student, you don't have health insurance, you have prayer, you know. And so you just hope for the best, pray for the best. And, and, uh, and so then just a couple of months before all of these great plans of mine to have health insurance for my family, really being able to provide for my family, uh, Amy tells me uh, uh, some news. She said... You're going to be a daddy. And, you know, immediately when you hear those words, you know, it's like, oh, man, i got to grow up. Okay, I gotta, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be responsible, you know. And, and so, you know, you're overjoyed. You're going to be a dad. What, a, what an incredible blessing. And then it hits you. You're going to be a dad with no health insurance for this pregnancy. And, uh, and so it's like, how are we going to pay for the pregnancy? Well, Got news for you, 
The baby in the womb, they don't, the baby doesn't care whether they have health insurance or not. It's coming. And so, sure enough, uh, some months later, on my birthday, in fact, my firstborn son was uh, given to us and uh, just been a wonderful blessing. And, and uh, all of these things with timing, you know, I couldn't, have, I couldn't have planned it out myself. If I had planned it out myself, it would have looked very different. Um, but God knew what he was doing. And I don't know if you've ever been in the kind of situation where you, in order to obey God, you had to go through some difficulties. And I wonder, you know, this being Christmas Day, I wonder how Mary, the mother of Jesus, must have felt when she was probably 14 years old, when the angel Gabriel came to her and, and gave her a message, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will bear a child, and this child will be the Savior of the world. And so here's Mary. She's betrothed to Joseph, but not yet officially married. And so she's going to have this baby out of wedlock. And it's not going to be a secret. I mean, everyone knows that they're not married yet. It's a community affair when someone gets married. And so, but it is what it is. These circumstances come upon her. And then as she uh, continues uh, in this journey called pregnancy, she's with child. And the seventh month comes along and the eighth month comes along and then the ninth month. And in that ninth month, the order comes that they're going to have to make a journey from where they're living in Nazareth to this little village uh, just to the east of uh, Jerusalem called Bethlehem, which was Joseph's uh, hometown as far as his heritage went, for the purpose of this uh, census that I read about a little bit ago. And so I don't know how many uh, of you ladies have uh, taken a baby to term, and, and you're in that ninth month, and you need to make a 70-mile trek on a donkey. But that's what she had to do. And, uh, and so you can imagine this 14, maybe 15-year-old girl making this journey on the donkey. It's, and it's about a 70-mile journey from, uh, from Nazareth as far as the, you know, as, as the crow flies, as they say. And there's lots of hills and valleys. There's a river and there's all kinds of things in the way. And it's about a four-day walk. If you're traveling 70 miles, that'd be like from us traveling from here at this location to Tulia, uh, just a little bit past halfway to Amarillo. So uh, if, if you can imagine that, except a lot more treacherous in being perhaps on a donkey. And, and if you're pregnant, I, I would assume that there was a conversation once or twice that said, Joseph, I have to go to the bathroom. And so it may have taken more than four days. Who knows? But all of these circumstances were thrust upon Mary. And it must have been a great inconvenience. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you understand that it would be a great inconvenience to be thrust in that situation? But sometimes obeying God means that we're inconvenienced. And unfortunately, there are some people that when they hear about the inconveniences of following after God, the inconveniences of obeying God, they run away. They don't want to be inconvenienced. They like their comforts. They like their situation. They don't want things to change. And so they'd rather not be inconvenienced. But I want you to understand something today, that God uses our difficulties 
to accomplish his purposes. Okay? God uses our difficulties, our challenges, our struggles, trials, whatever you want to call it, to accomplish his purposes, and he does it in his timing. He does it in his timing. Now, the timing of Mary's pregnancy, uh, it sure seems bad from our perspective, doesn't it? But from God's perspective, it was absolutely perfect. One little verse I'm going to read to you. It's in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And it's this little verse. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. A little phrase, the fullness of time. You know what that means? That means when the time was absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. At just the right time, God sent Mary these difficulties. At just the right time, God sent forth his son. Up until that time, God had been promising that a Savior would come. He had been foreshadowing through a lot of different symbols throughout history that a, that a Savior would come. God had been predicting that a Savior would come. God had been directing things in such a way that the Savior would come. But now, in the fullness of time, the Savior had come. You go all the way back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, after they sinned, God did something incredible. God promised them that the serpent that misled them, the serpent's head, would be crushed by the seed or descendant of the woman. He gave them a little bit of hope, a little promise to believe in. You fast forward to the time of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, they're old. They, they haven't had a child. They can't have a child. They're past their childbearing years. And yet God promised them that they would have a child. And through that child would come a Savior that would bless the whole world. And God fulfilled his promise. And then you fast forward past that. And King David, king of Israel, comes along and God makes a promise to him that he will have a descendant who will sit on his throne forever and ever. All throughout Scripture, God promises a Savior. And then in Galatians 4.4, the Apostle Paul writes these words, that in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time came, God did it. God kept his promise. God fulfilled what he said would happen. You know, Jesus Christ came right at the perfect time. He came at the perfect time politically. What do I mean by that? Well, when Jesus was born, the Roman Empire was at its height. Why does that matter? Well, because the Roman Empire was something that most other empires were not. The Roman Empire was very tolerant of religions. Now, for the Roman Empire, it looked like this. We will tolerate your religion. They'd conquer people, and they, they, those people would worship this God or that God, God of fertility, God of the sun, God of the seas, whoever. 
They'd worship all these different gods. And the Romans would come in and conquer them and say, you can keep worshiping your gods as long as you also pledge allegiance to Caesar. Worship him too. And they're like, hey, that's fine. Just don't kill us. And we'll be glad to add Caesar to all the other gods. Okay? And then they came to the Jews, and they had conquered the Jews, and the Jews refused. They said, no, no, no. We worship the true God. And the Romans might have asked, well, who's, who's the, the sun God that you worship? Well, we, we worship the God that made the sun. Well, who's the sea God that you worship? We worship the God that made the seas and all the creatures in it. We worship the God that made everything. We worship, the phrase they would use is, the most high God. We worship Yahweh. And Yahweh told us, right there in the Ten Commandments, to not worship other gods. We will not worship Caesar. And so the Romans made an exception. They made an exception for the Jews. And one of their uh, great writers put it this way, that they made an exception for the Jews because the Jews were so stubborn. The Jews would not give an inch on their religious principle of not worshiping other gods. And so the Jews had an exception to the rule of worshiping Caesar. And so, along comes Jesus. Along comes the story. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave. An ever-growing group of believers in Jesus start following Jesus. And you know what the Romans thought for many years? These are just Jews. They thought the Christians were just a little sect within Judaism. And so the Christians inherited this exception where they did not have to worship Caesar. And this went on for many years, for a number of decades, at least until a guy by the name of Nero came along in the 60s A.D., like the 0060s A.D. And Nero punished and persecuted the Christians, made them a scapegoat for his evil actions. But for that early period of time, when the Christian movement, if you will, or the Christian faith was just beginning to go, the Christians had this exception politically where they could exist. And by the time of Nero, the Christian movement, even at that young age, had already spread so far that it could not be stopped. Jesus was born during a time of peace. The Romans called it Pax Romana, meaning Roman peace. Why was it called Roman peace? Because they would conquer everybody and, and there were no wars. Caesar Augustus, the same Caesar Augustus that we read about, he became Caesar in A.D. 25, and from, or excuse me, B.C. 25. And from B.C. 25, for the next 250 years, there were practically no wars. There were skirmishes here and there. And there was a great Jewish rebellion that the Romans put down. But beyond that, Rome had no competition to its power. There was peace throughout the land. And because there's peace throughout the land, the government of Rome decided we're going to take all the people's taxes and we're going to build this great road system. They built, they built 50,000 miles of roads. And they did it so their military could get to the farthest reaches of the kingdom and conquer any rebellions that might rise up. Christians use these same roads. 
to take the gospel very easily to people who had not yet heard of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born in the fullness of time, at just the right time. It was the right time culturally as well. 300 years before Christ, you have this guy by the name of Alexander. He liked himself. He called himself Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great really was a magnificent conqueror. I mean, he conquered all the known world. It was said that when he finally uh, got to India, he cried because there's no more room to conquer, no more lands to conquer. He died in his early 30s. What Alexander the Great did when he conquered all of these lands was, among other things, he spread a common language, Greek. Koine Greek, common Greek. And it is in this common man's language, known throughout the entire known world at the time, that the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament were written in this common language so as, the, so as to help the spread of the Christian faith. Jesus came in the very fullness of time. He came at the right time spiritually as well. Because in that day, there were these Greek philosophers that became very famous, very well-known, very well-read, very much studied. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. And these guys asked questions like, what's the meaning of life? And so you had people all throughout the known world wondering, what's the meaning of life? And right then comes the Christian message. And the Christian message says, we'll tell you what the meaning of life is. is to worship God. It is to honor His Son, to glorify Him. Jesus came at exactly the right time. God knew what He was doing. God orchestrated all of this. And Jesus came at just the right time. God uses our decisions for His purposes. I want you to think about this. Because Joseph and Mary, they willingly accepted God's will for their life. I mean, God was sort of intrusive, wasn't he? Telling Mary what was going to happen. Bringing something into Mary's life that she did not ask for. Was not hoping for. God just did it. But Mary accepted God's will. Joseph accepted God's will, even though they probably didn't understand it. In fact, by the way, you don't have to understand something first for you to accept it. You don't have to understand every little detail about the Christian faith before you can finally come to the point where you say, I believe. There are things I don't understand yet, but I believe. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says that we plan out our lives, but the Lord determines our steps. People say today, look, I, hey, I'm free to do as I want. I can do whatever I want. And I want you to know that's exactly right. God made you free to do whatever you want, to accept whatever you want, reject whatever you want. And I want you to understand something. For the person who follows Christ, that person's free choice of following Christ will achieve God's purposes. God accomplishes His purposes through our decisions. And so if you decide to follow Christ, God's purposes will be done in you. 
but I want you to know something else. If you decide, no, I reject this idea of Christ. I reject this idea of God becoming flesh and dying on a cross to pay for my sins. I reject it. I do not believe it. I want you to understand something. That God will use your decision to accomplish His purposes. What do I mean? I mean this. It is the purpose of God to save believers. And it is the purpose of God to respect the choice of unbelievers. Either way, God's will will not be thwarted. Today, I'm offering you an invitation to follow this baby in a manger who became a man, who became our Savior by dying on the cross. God will fulfill His purposes in you if you decide to believe. And if you decide not to believe, God will respect your free choice and He will fulfill His purposes in your life, although they will be very different purposes than for those who believe. You see, God has done everything necessary for you to be saved, for you to be saved. God leaves the decision in your hands. Do you believe or not? I hope that you will. I hope that you will. And if you're yet unconvinced, I hope that you'll do this this day. I hope that you will consider the life of the believers in your life that you know. And ask yourself, is that what I want with my life? Or am I content? Am I happy? Am I fulfilled? Just doing my own thing, going my own way. And I hope that the people in your life who are believers would have such joy, have such contentment, have such peace, that that would be a witness, if you will, to you.